Hello, dear friend, co-host, and radio host, and music personality, Emily Reese. Hello to sommelier, wine, beer, spirits, extraordinaire, friend of mine, Jill Mott. <laughs> What's up, <laughs> my friend? How are you? I'm great. I'm absolutely great on this fine day in our fair city of Minneapolis. Emily and I are giggly because we are getting back onto our recording schedule of doing many shows in one day. Yeah. We like to get ahead of the curve for when there's there are travels. Yeah. You never know. There was a time where we were worried about getting COVID, so we're like, let's just record 19 episodes in a day. <laughs> that made for a really good palate and a really great liver. Yeah. And brain dead the next day. Well, today we're going to kind of piggyback on to last week's episode. Last week we talked about the age-worthiness or ageability of wine and classical music. And this week we're doing the same with beer and jazz. Spirits age, wines age. The question is, do beers age? And I think some of them do, rarely. But some of them are even meant to age. But others, you know, they have enough uh, mustard. I'll <laughs> decipher what mustard is in a moment. <laughs> uh, to last, a, not maybe not the long haul, but... A few years, for sure. With jazz, it's interesting because, you know, it's only been around for 100 years, give or take. So it's a, it's a little bit interesting of a conversation to, or a decision, really, on my part to, to choose music that I felt could stand the test of time, you know? And I listen to the playlist because Emily is so nice to forward them to me so I can prepare and listen and get my head around, you know, what she's going to be presenting you all with. In the previous episode, if you listened to our classical music episode, mm -hmm. I was very quickly convinced, not only obviously for one of the classical tunes that was from 600 years ago, but then the other one, uh, they were the same tune, but done a little bit differently. And I was like, well, yes, Emily Reese, yes, you're right. <laughs> so now I just can't wait for you to convince me again. Yeah, I hope so. Um, let's, let's talk about these beers though, because um, there's some really special ones in front of us. There are four bottles, which makes me excited. I want to preface this by saying the first beer I ever had that was aged was Deschutes, one of my favorite kind of bigger breweries, but still craft breweries in the country. Deschutes, they make a, a Russian imperial stout called the Abyss. And I remember it was, I want to say it was maybe their 2005 or 2008, something like that. And I had it four years later. And I carted this stupid bottle around wherever I moved. And people were like, you know, that were helping me move. I had my Boxes of wine, yeah, and then I had my box of beer. Every time I moved, I was made fun of. Someone else other than myself was moving that box of beer, and between friends and family, I would get made fun of. Like, why are you like aging beer? And when I opened it up, I was shocked at how you know the that fiery heat, the alcohol had sort of mellowed with all the dark chocolatey malts of a, a Russian imperial stout, and still had the hop presence to keep it all balanced. And then I had tasted; I was really familiar with uh, Belgian gooses, which we'll taste a goose today, sour beers in Belgium, tasted from barrel, knowing that you know the oldest Belgian beer I had had was maybe. 10 years old, eight years old, depending on the blend. And tasting out of barrel, like 25-year-old beer mm -hmm. that was just as live. I was like, what, what, uh, it's just, uh, yes, yes, <laughs> beer can age. Amazing. Uh, so yeah, I, 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 I'm excited to pour them for you. I think I need to tell people why beers age really first, but I want to. Do you mind that we music? I want to get. I want to get some like tunes reverberating and vibrating into my soul, my yeah. veins. Absolutely, let's totally listen to some great music right now. I chose today piano trios because I think the piano trio is one of the most timeless sounds, or can be, depending on I guess the style of music they're playing, but mostly. I find a piano trio just a really satisfying experience to listen to. And so the first one we're going to hear is from a pianist named Keith Jarrett. And Keith Jarrett has uh, just dozens and dozens of recordings out. He was born in 1945, and he uh, has recorded often with two uh, people in particular in this piano trio setting, which tends to be piano, bass, drums. 
the bassist is a man named Gary Peacock, and the drummer is Jack DeJanet. So let's listen to something from a, a live recording they did at the Blue Note in New York in 1994. So here's Keith Jarrett. because this could be written in the 40s. This could be written in 1950. This could be written in 2030. (laughs) Yeah. This is a standard called Autumn Leaves. Now, what I'm wondering is, you mentioned it's a standard. Yes. So is it sounding timeless? Because it is a standard. It was written a while ago, but still plays well. And of course, it needs to be played by a certain person to be played well, right? Interpreted well. So because Keith Jarrett is playing slash interpreting it, the, yeah. it, it's Keith Jarrett and the fact that it's a standard together that make yeah. it timeless? Yeah, I okay. think so. Well, that's a really good question. Yeah, because I think, you know, Keith Jarrett has recorded many solo sets as well, where he's playing music that's completely improvised. Mm-hmm. And it, it's not even like he he himself has written a tune ahead of time. He's maybe, you know, sketching out a tempo or something like that, but it's spontaneously composed, right? Okay. So that music to me sounds really timeless as well. In fact, uh, I'll drop in a little bit from this one concert he did in Budapest where uh, that was released just not that long ago. And that has some amazing music in it that I think is completely timeless and it's nothing that was ever heard before nor after, you know? So I think there's something that he has that brings that quality to it, you know? When was Autumn Leaves written or first performed? Autumn Leaves is from 1945, and uh, the words are originally in French, but they were translated to English by Mr. Johnny Mercer, who's a famous lyricist. Well, so many things in French are timeless, let's be clear. Yeah. Let's talk, we could talk about the wine, we could talk about pâté. Yeah. Pate is never going to not be delicious. Totally. Totally. Sorry, keep going. So, you know, we've heard this long solo introduction to this tune by Keith Jarrett, but I mentioned that it's a piano trio. So eventually the bass and drums do come in. And this is something that I think is kind of a common thread between these trio performances of Keith Jarrett. And I've never seen him live. And um, I don't think he performs anymore, which is a bummer, but uh, he, he'll, do, he'll just, I don't even know if they have a set list sometimes. I mean, he'll just start a tune and he'll do this long soliloquy on it and then the bass and drums eventually Yeah, come I see in. you fast forwarded to like five, yeah. between five and six minutes in, Keith Jarrett just is like, hold on. You know, they'll play for sometimes like 10, 12, 15 minutes on some of these standards, just three of them. Good. I mean, you order a drink and it takes 10 to 15 minutes if it's good quality to get to you. <laughs> yes. So that's fine. Exactly. That's perfect. It's a nice slow burn on some really uh, just amazing music. And uh, so that's one of the reasons I chose Keith Jarrett. Do you want to hear one more tune? Please. I'd love to. Okay. This is the same trio, so Keith Jarrett on piano, Jack DeJanet on drums, and Gary Peacock on the bass, and this is a standard called You Took Advantage of Me. This is from a 2001 live show, and it was released in 09. And when was, you said this is another standard. Yeah. When was this written? So this is a standard from a musical, which is really where a lot of jazz standards come from. Um, And this is from 1928 for a musical called Present Arms, which may not sound familiar to you, but Richard Rodgers was a very famous musical composer. And that name might sound familiar to you, like Rodgers and Hammerstein, perhaps, as a duo. But this was not Hammerstein as the lyricist. This was Lawrence Hart 
So you took advantage of me. Um, yeah, another I, jazz standard, 1928. Well, and I wonder too, like, if we were to listen to the version from the musical, <laughs> it maybe wouldn't be timeless. So yeah. now it's taking a standard, putting it in the right hands. Yes. And then making it sound like a timeless piece of music. Totally. Which in that case, you know, it isn't always just the standard. Right. Mixed with the the artist or artists, it seems like it's the artist's interpretation. Absolutely, um, which is pretty dope. Totally, absolutely. And on that same note, like a lot of jazz standards that came from musicals, when you hear those in their original form, just like you're saying, it sounds a little weird because mm-hmm. they're often really music theater, like not necessarily square, but a yeah, little more. Um, I know exactly what you mean. Like yeah. you could take songs from Rent. Yeah. Give them to a piano trio. Yes. Throw a jazz beat behind it. <laughs> yeah. And we'd be way less probably depressed, number yeah. one. But yeah. two, um, it would maybe sound timeless. <laughs> so, got you. So, Keith Jarrett, really great, uh, timeless pianist. And not always in the... By the way, he's a vocalizer. Yeah, so if you I hear, some, hear that. Some voice in the background, that's what he does. Which he doesn't do when he records classical music. And he's recorded a lot of classical albums as well on the ECM label. But... Um, but he does do it when he's playing jazz, and I just couldn't recommend him more highly. And and explore his other stuff too. I mean, is he's got he does like I said more than just the trios uh, stuff. But uh, yeah, check it out. Should I crack open some Brujas? Please do. Out of the three examples of aged beer we have, this is surely the most delicate. Not in the world, but of what we have here. I brought Orval Trappist Ale from southeastern Belgium. And I will tell you more about the beer and my visit in a brief moment. But people say that Orval can age five-ish years, give or take, depending on how it's cellared. I was skeptical until I had my first five-year-old Orval, and I was like, holy balls, this is like so (laughs) incredible. So today, I got a beer that was bottled in September of 2020, and then I got one that was bottled in July of 2016. Whoa. And- How much does something like that cost? How much did that one bottle of five-year-old beer cost? Probably a normal bottle of Orval is about $6, so this was maybe eight. Okay. And that's one of the arguments for why not cellar beer if you think you can age because it costs like one one hundredth of what a wine costs, you yeah. know, in that realm. Not And not all wines need to be expensive to be cellar worthy, by the way. Why age beer? It can be interesting. Is it relevant? Sure. In a world of like expanding palates and like what beverages are capable of doing, like why the hell not? Especially because it's fairly, it's reasonably priced if you're not looking to like shotgun the beer, if you're going to actually like look at the color, enjoy the effervescence. This is a perfect example of a beer that you would look at the alcohol and you'd be like, wow, this is only 6.9%. I probably shouldn't age this because it's not high enough in alcohol. Alcohol is a good preserver in a beer. But that brings me to a point. Beers not to age. Low alcohol beers, hoppy beers, like light lagers. Drink all that stuff fresh. The fresher, the better. The beers to age I think come in two categories. One is higher alcohol, like seven or eight percent or above, and or if they have bacterias other than just yeast that have allowed for fermentation and an exchange of information chemically to happen in the beer. So in this case, Orval has gone through three different fermentations. They've had its regular fermentation with some good old yeast. The second fermentation, they actually add Britannomyces, which adds a little funk factor and microbial activity that's Mm. happening that's not just yeast-oriented, it's actually bacterial. And then the third fermentation that happens in the bottle, or the third exchange, if you will, they're adding a little bit of candy sugar and then yeast, and then they crown cap it. So you do actually get this third chemical change in the bottle, and... Not only the two yeasts, of course, but the bacterial component that Britannomyces makes for an age-worthy beer. Here on your left, we have the Orval that was bottled in 2020. And on the right, we have the Orval that was bottled in 2016, which they put a little sticker on it that says, 
Oud Orval. I thought it said Dude Orval when I first saw <laughs> I'm like, Dude Orval. <laughs> <laughs> and you asked a really good question when I put these bottles out. You're like, how much did that cost our scores and pours budget? Yeah. And, you know, the, a regular bottle of Orval hovers right around $6. And an Oud Orval usually doesn't cost much more than a few dollars more than that. So for less than $10, you can have a four to five-year-old beer that's really, really different from the other. So let's let's taste them. Sounds good. Okay. So tell me what you think of that 2020 Emily Reese. Okay. And now compare it to the 2016 before you say anything. And we're drinking these in traditional Orval glasses. I made sure to have those. I mean, you got to have the the right glassware for the right beer. What do you think are the differences between them discernibly for you? Discernibly, the 2016, the older of the two, is more floral and less bitter on the finish. And the bubbles are more aggressive slightly, which surprises me. Those are my three things I notice the most. It's the older beer is more floral, more bubbly in a weird way, like more sting to the bubbles. And what was my other? Oh, and not bitter on the, not as bitter on the finish, which is not a bad thing at all. It's just a, a lax there compared to the 2020. Interesting. So I, I share some of those sentiments and some of them I don't. The 2016, I think, has less hot presence on the finish. That I agree with. They're both refreshingly hoppy, but the 2020 is more aggressively hopped um, just because it's newer. The hops, you know, that the fact that it's dry hopped along with the Brutanomyces, that's more noticeable right now in the 2020. For me, I think the 2020 is much more effervescent as well, that it's like way more like a La Croix soda water Mm. versus like a, you know, a champagne in the 2016 kind of version. And that will mellow with time. And then The floral component, I totally know what you mean. I sort of associate floral with hops, but I think I know what you mean. The 2016 seems like kind of dried, almost bruised floral quality. To me, it's a little bit more malty, whereas the 2020 is a little bit more kind of bright, that hoppy floral quality, and a little bit less, it's a little bit more kind of yeast forward as well. I don't know. Let's give them one more sip back to back. All right. I got the 2020 in my hand right here. You've got the 16. I know what you mean about the effervescence. It's sort of strange because the 2016 seems like it's a little bit more incorporated and aggressive, whereas the 2020 seems like it's almost more soda water, salty, aggressive. So I know what you mean there, but do you notice how different? I mean, they're so there's such different beers. So different. And this is something that is really hard to do if you don't have two side by side, like a fresh one and an oud or old Orval. Technically, they say old Orval starts at about six months to a year, depending on who you talk to, in order to get the old Orval sticker on your bottle. Yeah. But I think having them side by side, you really do get the pleasure of tasting how Orval can develop in bottle, which is such a privileged and beautiful experience. It is, and I just can't believe how still fresh and um, just lively the older one is. It's delicious. And it has a couple years left in it, I think. I mean, you could easily sell her this for another year or two. When I was in Belgium and went to the monastery and subsequently went to the, you know, went to the brewery and had a great person who let me talk to the brewers, which was a really strange experience because she said most people don't get to talk to the brewers. Like, <laughs> And so it was really fun to be able to walk down and see the Britannomyces tanks and learn about the history of Orval. I mean, they've been brewing since the 1930s only, and they only brew twice a week. All the money goes to charity that they make for the beer and to support the monastery, of course, but they're not like living large. Yeah. But the monastery itself has been around since like the 1700s, and the ruins there are absolutely gorgeous. You can go and you can drink a beer, not technically in the monastery, you can go just to their little offsite, little mm-hmm. like cafe situation, but a really cool experience for anybody that's in Belgium. Nice. Scores and Boars field trip. <laughs> <laughs> Don't take my blood alcohol level on that trip. <laughs> Music. Oscar Peterson is so timeless. And this I kind of picked for a little bit different reason. It's when we talked about the, in the classical episode, when I played uh, some music by Robert Schumann, that to me, it was like the beauty and the simplicity of it that makes it last. 
And I think this is kind of a parallel there. The tastiness here, the tasty factor, the groove, the feel, the mojo, it's like this will be groovy and tasty forever and ever and ever and ever. This is also, I remember um, in one of the other jazz episodes that we've talked about how, you know, some instrumentalists will play without a pianist. Maybe they'll substitute in a guitar player. Maybe they won't have any chordal instrument at all. They won't have a piano or a guitarist or a vibraphonist or anybody like that. Um, this is uh, this window of time where Oscar Peterson was playing with a guitarist, which can be a little unusual, sort of, because you've got two instruments that kind of can serve the same role. Like in per- the, being per- percussive, kind of? Well, being percussive with the chords they're playing underneath the soloist, yep. things like that. But uh, it's just it's just so, so good. So this is a trio without a drummer. So instead of the drummer, we have a guitarist in a man named Herb Ellis and the bassist, of course, Ray Brown. Ray Brown and Oscar Peterson played together often throughout uh, Oscar's life. And this is a standard. I've mentioned that word many times. You'll hear me use that word almost every time we talk about jazz, a standard being a tune that's been around for a long, long time. This is something that's kind of codified as uh, a jazz standard. So if you go somewhere where they maybe have a live jam session or something like that, this is a tune everybody's going to know. They will have heard of this tune. It's called Alone Together, one of my personal favorite jazz standards. And the tastiness of this just cannot be overstated. It starts off with a little kind of a little bass vamp by Ray Brown and uh, Herb Ellis just kind of playing some chords in the back. And then when Oscar Peterson comes in, it's just, it's just so perfect. As Emily sent me the playlist for today's, you know, today's Mm -hmm. episode, I got to the Oscar, and I didn't know who was coming next, right? I waited till I heard 30 seconds before I looked, and I heard like the first two bars and was like, all day. Yeah. All day on repeat. Ray Brown and Oscar Peterson together, no question. I, know. I mean, those two in particular, regardless of who else was on stage with them or in the recording studio with them, those two together had some, had such a connection. I mean, and I mean, that speaks to their own musicianship and abilities because they really could sound like that with anybody. But together, my God, it's just magic. It gives me goosebumps. So let's hear uh, Oscar Peterson, Ray Brown, and Herb Ellis play this great tune called Alone Together. The album is called Tenderly, in case you're looking for the album. I mean, just stop the recording right there. It's so good. I know. It's like Oscar hasn't even played a note. It's still badass forever. There he comes in. Oscar joins. I'm I'm humming the bass, and Emily's like (laughs) air guitaring over there. Here comes the melody. the touch I'm sorry, if you're not going home and cooking to this, you're just not in tune with the world. <laughs> like, seriously, your food will taste better. Your bath will be warmer. You know, your sheets will be softer. All yeah. the, like, all the things in life, if you're just doing it to Oscar Peterson. Yeah. And then preferably just toss Ray Brown in the mix and you're kind of screwed because it's going to be so good. Just to the restraint, because they could be playing so much louder, but they're just holding back. The run would be slower, but then you just walk and yeah. you look and muse upon the grasses and the lakes.
How is that not the tastiest thing anybody's ever heard? And listen to him build this solo up. There, you can, can hear, hear him vocalizing. Talking, yeah. talking in the <laughs> background. Tell me you couldn't go to hear that. Somebody play that on stage now and that you wouldn't just jaw drop, be like, yes, this is the best thing I've ever heard. Like, how is that not t- ageless? I wouldn't, and I'd be like, you think you're Oscar Peterson. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, this forever will be amazing. Yeah. yeah. You know? I just got to take those off or I'm going to, I'm taking off my headphones because if I don't, I'm just not, I'm going to be like, can you put on another Oscar Peterson <laughs> I know, we tune? just listen to the whole seven minute track or whatever it is. <laughs> yeah. Or the whole Tenderly album. Yeah, I know. I mean, you really can't go, there's so, and that was one of the things that I really enjoyed about Oscar Peterson was his collaboration with guitarists. Of course, there's great albums he did with Joe Pass too. The Mirage track that you love so much is with guitarist Joe Pass. Actually, I don't think Joe plays on that track per se, but he's on that album. And uh, what a fun collaboration uh, between a guitarist and a piano. And of course, there are other examples, but it's just, it's just timeless and wonderful and amazing and now, awesome. people are going to ask us, surely on the hundreds of DMs we get a week. Yeah. On at scores and pours. Instagram. Which, Instagram, by the way. You can follow us on Instagram at scores and pours, which I will open this next beer with my trusty scores and pours corkscrew. Yes. Which is available via our tier system on patreon.com slash scores and pours if you decide to help us finance this podcast, we would greatly appreciate it. Be amazing. Patron-only content all the way through, but yeah. on a couple of tiers, there are is some free merch. And one of those is a Scores and Pours Corkscrew, which I'm about to use to open the second beer. But we wanted to thank our existing patrons right now. We could not do this without your help. This is not a free podcast for Emily and I to produce. Wine doesn't grow in our backyard. Uh, barley doesn't either, nor do dollars. So we appreciate all of you that can contribute. And for those of you that can't but are still enjoying the podcast, that's our gift to you. So mm-hmm. thanks for listening. Also, we always put up a playlist and we always put up a beer list, wine list, whatever. We're as specific as we can be about the products and uh, musical things that we talk about. So if you're ever curious about that, that's all on the Patreon page as well. Patreon.com slash scores and pours. And yes, I also want to echo that. Thank you to those who are patrons now. Before we get to this beer with our scores and pours corkscrew and the like, yeah, people are going to ask, well, why aren't you playing Miles? It's timeless. Miles is timeless. No, it's not. <laughs> okay. I, I'm just wondering because I, I feel like it's not only because I think Miles is one of the most obviously talented and visionary yes. and genius trumpet players visionary. of all time. But like, you know, I hear Miles and it really brings me to the, it depends on the era of Miles. Like, but I also know about those. So I'm like, yeah. oh, I hear that. And I'm like, oh, that's 80s Miles. Yikes. Yeah. <laughs> Yikes. Or I hear like 50s Miles and I'm like, what? I just want to, like, my head wants to blow up. Yeah. So, but, I mean, what do you say to all those people that are like, why don't you have Miles on here? Well, (laughs) that's such a great question, and you kind of answered it because you're like, I I hear 50s Miles in this, and I hear 80s Miles in this. Miles had eras, you know what I mean? And you hear that in his playing, especially if you know Miles. You're like, oh, well, that's Miles from the 50s. That's Miles from the 60s. That's obviously Miles from the late 40s. Miles was ahead of the curve in terms of his playing, but also very much with it. And so he was absorbing influence from other musical things happening at the time, too. So you hear that through his music. Like one of my favorite Art Farmer albums, for instance, is an album called Crawl Space. It's so of that era. Awesome. Let's just listen yes. to let's listen just for you know what it sounds like, I know, but let's just listen to a half a second of crawl space. 
this is from a very specific time, right? Now, is this going to sound fun and amazing 100 years from now? Yeah. I think Miles, I think I've listened to so much Miles. It's never enough. You always want to hear more. But it's like, when I hear Oscar Peterson, Oscar Peterson could have recorded that track in the 90s, and he could have recorded it in the 40s. And it's not to say that Oscar Peterson didn't grow as a musician, but it's like something about that is ageless. Whereas if you heard Miles in the 80s... It's not, ti- as you've, you've used the term timestamp, but it's not really timestamped. Yeah. If and, you didn't know Oscar Peterson, you didn't know dates, you'd have be hard-pressed to be like, well, that was recorded at that time. Yeah, and I think Miles, first of all, had such a hunger for being on the cutting edge that that does date it a lot of times because you're trying to stay ahead of or at least up with mm-hmm. the trends in music. And by doing that, no matter how visionary and how inventive you are and all the things that Miles Davis was, yeah, you're still going to sound like whatever year that album came out. Yeah, no, I got you. Because, I mean, there that's the second time you've asked me, why isn't there Miles Davis here? <laughs> well, that was on the last one because the last one we were doing something else. Don't, well, we were you don't talking about to include that. Precision, yeah. No, I know. Um, yeah, precision, that's true. but yeah. Yeah, but it's, a, it's an excellent question. Because I think a lot of people are going to ask that on every jazz thing we do. They're going to be like, why didn't you put Miles? That's why I asked that. No, but I think you I think you iterated it perfect. Okay, I hope so. You ready? Yeah. Let me ask you this before you take a sip of that, Emily Reese. Please. Should beer be stored like wine? Me not knowing the correct answer to that question, I would say no because they're different agricultural products, but that's just me and that beer isn't really as agricultural in the first place, but it still is. But I would say no, you shouldn't store them the same. Okay, well, you're only right if we say store beer cap up. If it has a cork, leave it capped down if you want, but most people store beer with, you know, upright. Wine is... Like it would be in your fridge. Yep. Wine is horizontal to keep the cork nice and moist. But other than that, beer loves a steady, cool temperature, just like wine. If it's a little cooler, that's fine. But the whole no light, no vibration, no odors, nice amount of humidity... Is great. Humidity is a little bit less of an issue, but you still want those crown caps to stay nice and tight. And if you got humidity that's ninety percent one day and thirty percent another day, those caps are gonna, you know, you're gonna start to release the most finite amount of oxygen or have that enter your beer. But I just wanted to point that out for anybody that's hearing this episode and they're like, oh, I want to go buy a little something, and they know something about storing wine. It, it's almost a, a parallel. Nice. Um, but let's taste this because you smelled it and was like, what the heck is this? It's so funny because I, I was con- I think I was conscious as I was talking that you were handing me something, but I didn't realize it wasn't the Orval. And so I like took a drink and was really surprised. <laughs> yeah, there are two styles of beer in the world that could be my mother's milk. A great Saison or farmhouse ale. Let's not go buy Saison yeast and make a domestic... It just tastes like it was made every three weeks, pump out. Farm, true farmhouse, funky barnyardy, but with a nice Saison strain. Or the shit in her glass. So this is a Goose, G-E-U-Z-E. Once in a while there's an extra U dumped in there somewhere. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. Um, But so this is from a producer called Boone Goose, who you can trace the farmhouse's brewing history back to like the 1600s. But the current, you know, it's changed hands over the, the decades and centuries. Frank Boone, the current owner, came into his hands, I can't remember, it's got to be like three decades ago or so, and he, along with a few other breweries, have really maintained the tradition of age-worthy beer, but out of necessity, sort of, because they would make lambiques, which are like aged, single vintage beers, and they're usually all, a lot of them are blended together, right? They want to homogenize to make something that I can sell to you every year, Boone Goose, and you're going to be like, dope, this is delicious. Goose is a blend of lambiques, okay? Usually a certain percentage, a uh, higher percentage of old beer, younger beer, depending on the house. 
Now, Boongoos were located in the Zen Valley. We're just south of Belgium. And it's one of the few places in the world, it's actually the only place in the world, that beer is recognized as being spontaneously fermented, meaning we're adding no yeast to this beer ever. Hmm. We're putting it in a flat pan that I want to bathe in called a cool ship. And a cool ship is like a shallow, usually made out of copper pan that is maybe a foot high. And you're putting beer in there. You're opening up the top of your brewery and allowing all the ambient yeasts from the beautiful Zen Valley to enter in. It starts to ferment in this cool ship. And then you go and dump that in and start making your beer from that. And cool ships, now there are cool ships in the United States. But a lot of times then they're like, oh, let's have use this cool ship and then let's go add some Britannomyces and I'll do all these. Like in the Zen Valley, it's like cool ship, fermenter, oak barrel, Bob's your uncle. This is not pasteurized. It's not filtered. It's not fined. This is wow. raw ass beer. And you yeah, know what? Is. This is 11 years old. What? This is Boon Goose's Marriage Parfait. Cheers, BTW. To scores and pours. To scores and pours. And this is only brewed. Boone only brews during the cold months of the year, so October through April, because it's cool enough for the beers to not go, get too hot and sour. Mm-hmm. And it's a really great temperature for that those yeasts to fester. You know, it's just warm enough, but it's not, not too warm. And here they're using 40% wheat, 60% barley. They're using old hops. When I went to Belgium and learned about a lot of the stuff, they were like people, I visited a lot of different gooseries or little broweries <laughs> that made goose. And they're like, yeah, first of all, new hops are expensive. Mm. Second of all, all I need is a preservative. Hmm. Hops are an antioxidant. I'm looking to preserve my beer. I'm not looking to like overly flavor my beer. Okay. So now you're able to use what everybody else doesn't want for less money and preserve and and then it's you're not relying on the essential oils to flavor your beer. You're relying on all of the other components including some essential oil, but to act as an antioxidant to preserve your beer. This is aged for a minimum of 3 years in fooder and hmm. old big old oak barrels. Yeah. And then they're adding a little bit of young lambic in the bottle to create this, as you saw, the smallest amount of sparkle. Yeah. And like that very, just that gentle refermentation. And yeah, barnyardy, yeah. funky. What do you think? The color is like gold. Yeah, it's very like kind of brownish, caramely kind of. Um, I mean, I. You I can say wonder... concentrated urine if you want. I mean, that's what it looks like. That's the first thing I thought of. Weird. Doesn't make me not want to drink it. Now that I look at it, yeah. Uh, I think if you handed me this and asked me what it was, I don't know that I would immediately be like, oh, this is beer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's what's so strange about it. It's just such a different thing. And what's honestly, I think, kind of sad about that is that we're so accustomed to this flavor of like light or medium-bodied, hoppy, sudsy beer. Yeah. When in reality, that stuff has to be fairly quick to market, and it usually has to be really quick to consume. And it's usually pasteurized and CO2 injected. Mm. And Lord knows where the yeast come from and the barley and all that. This is mostly local grains. And the fact that like this is just hasn't really been tampered with. It's been moved a few times. And this is like really raw beer. It has Mm -hmm. soured. We all sour. I mean, I'm sour as hell in my early 40s. Everything (laughs) sours as it gets older. So why are we like not? And I I get it that this is this flavor is not for everybody, but like it's it's true. It's true. It's very delicious. Yeah. What do you think about? This is eight percent alcohol, so it's medium to full. We're getting to the full-bodied beer category, Mm -hmm. even though it doesn't taste like it because of all the acid. Yeah. This has got a good amount of acidity. Yeah, it does. It's very citrusy, but not in a hops way. Do you think it's pretty More funky like, barnyardy piggy? Yeah. Yeah, but not again, not bad, but yeah. Mm-hmm. How much effervescence do you think it has? Oh my god, I very want very little. Yeah, very little. Mm-hmm. I want this almost every day. That's crazy. This is like my favorite beer style ever. Mm. I'm yeah, it's cuz every once in a while you'll like pop by with a sour beer you want me to taste and I'm just like Oh, I can't anymore, but this is not, this is much better than that. Well, and this is a food beer too. I mean, bear mm-hmm. in mind, like a lot of people are in 
Belgium nowadays is different than Belgium 50 years ago. Yeah. You're drinking while you're eating, right? So mm -hmm. this is like meant to go with your rich food that's going to sustain you till the next time you can eat, yeah. which Lord knows when that was, depending yeah. on your family. And so this is not only caloric, but it's acidic. It helps break down the, the rich food that you're eating. And I think that's what's so special about a lot of the wines and beers that I enjoy is that it's like part of the whole experience. We're not just like going out for happy hour, tipping back the goozes. I mean, I would be, but <laughs> I would be hoping for a big pork chop soon. Cheers to that. Let's get back to some music. Yeah, the other pianist I chose, absolutely one of my favorite pianists right now, is a young guy named Sullivan Fortner. And I love, love, love his playing. He's born in 1986 and he's from New Orleans. When I was working in an old job of mine in jazz radio and played a new CD from a vocalist named Cecile McLaurin-Salvant, who's from Miami, they released a duo album, and I was absolutely just blown away with his ability to accompany, right? So he's supporting the vocalist and also just the way he was playing. And that really tuned me into Sullivan Fortner. And I think he does really fun projects. He's done other duo projects. There's a really great album he just released last year with a vibraphonist. Um, that's an amazing album. And uh, anyway, but let's listen to an album of his that's a trio. So piano, bass, drums. And here he is playing a tune called Beans and Cornbread. This is Sullivan Fortner, I think very timeless, ageless pianist. chosen three pianists. Yeah, I think it's a little easier to kind of hear apples to apples. And now everybody, after you listen to this episode, go back and listen to some Schumann and the previous episode of Scores and Pours, because yeah. apples to apples with the pianists. Totally. That's some that's some hardcore Thelonious Monk influence right there mm -hmm. with the, that dissonance. Yep. I was just gonna ask you about that. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Just like the sour of that beer. Yeah. Hashtag scores wars. <laughs> There's something about his playing that I find so fresh, and I just I can't get enough of it. It's crisp. There's an element of crispness to it that's like... Yeah, I think part of that could be the way it was recorded, but also I think it is the way he's playing, and he's he's just... I think he's got the right amount of, like, like staccato, like, punctuating, and then... Yeah. And then fat, you know? There's a right amount of acid and fat here, yeah. and I love that. Yeah, totally. Hashtag scores and pours. So let's listen to a little bit of this duo album he just released. Uh, I absolutely love it. It's with this vibraphonist named Kyle Athade. This is a standard again, standard called The Way You Look Tonight.
don't mind if I do serve myself some more goose to the sun. Would love it. What I love about this song is I really want to be in an armchair, looking out the window, reading. I want to be like, because I can focus on how good this music is, but I could, it also helps me understand the world, like other parts of the world. I could be looking at maps. I could be like reading in a different language. And I love that about, because the world is so interconnected, right? And so I, yes, do I love to taste wine in complete silence without anybody around and in a white room with my wine maps? Sure. But I love when I can interact with different forms of art, and this is 100% for me, that. hates when I do this, but I'm going to do it. Last but not least, we're traveling to Manchester. <laughs> She's like, Shut this is J.W. Lees, <laughs> a great producer of very age-worthy beers. They're released with vintage dates on them, sometimes in different casks. So they'll have Harvestale and Sherry cask, Harvestale and Madeira casks. Nice. All those things I love. I do and don't love the fact that this is like 11 plus percent alcohol. Whoa. So this is definitely the armchair jazz sit down. You're in a, you're staying put for the night. Yeah. Probably sharing. This is a small 9.3 ounce bottle. Wow. Perfect for four people or <laughs> one, depending on who you are. But J.W. Lee's, they make a lot of different beer and they've kind of acclimated to the fact that they need to make an IPA and they need to have bitters and all these different styles. They need to have a best bitter. They need to have a lager and all the things at their breweries. But this is what they're known for here in the States is their Harvest Ale. This is their 2016. It's brewed once a year to commemorate the harvest of all of the agricultural products that were just brought in. So... Only English malts, Maris Otter malts, and then only Golding's hops that were brought in that previous summer autumn. And it's released every year on the 1st of December. And this is what we would consider a barley wine. A barley wine is basically, you know, they call it that because it's basically a wine made of barley, right? Whoa. Because of the alcohol content, because it's so high in alcohol. And they are still using... They're copper fermenters that were concocted in the 1870s, open top. And granted, they do have a house yeast that they use, so we're not using ambient yeast from around the whole wherever in Manchester. <laughs> but they are using, they are allowing for those ambient temperatures around the brewery to just, you know, whatever's happening is happening. And a barley wine ends up being like fireside. It smells like copper meets mold? a porridge, meets maybe a little mold. <laughs> it's got this kind of candy smell to it too. Oh, yeah. Just wait till you taste it. It's like drinking toffee. And this is... Not what I expect. Five-year-old beer. Emily's making a face like she doesn't like it, which is totally valid. I don't think I like it. I mm. want to tell you, have this with blue cheese, nuts, and some delicious crackers or bread. Amazing. Because... Very flavorful. I want you to taste this one more time, please. Mm -hmm. And I will. tell me how hoppy it is. It's so hoppy to be able to balance 11.2% alcohol and keep that fresh. Wow. It tastes how like it's buttery no. and then it's salty. It's like very much like caramel, like homemade caramel. Mm -hmm. Buttery, salty. Weird. It's very strange. Six years old. Wow. Mm -hmm. The flavor has got really um, 
yeah, it does have some like sweetness to it. And I'm sorry if that's not appropriate, like it's not sugary sweet, but it's... It is on the be- on yeah. the beginning for sure. Yeah. At the front of the palate, we mm-hmm. definitely have some residual sugar here for sure. Do you notice on the finish though, it tastes like, like you just ate toffee or that you just ate like you it's, had uh, caramelized butter or something? Yeah, kind of that... Um, not like a burned, cookie, but almost like a burned butter kind like of like an oat Swedish oat cookie. Okay, yes. I don't know what that is. Oh, okay, like probably oatmeal, most like, people don't know what that like is. Like an <laughs> like an oatmeal cookie that's made with a lot of butter. Yeah, that maybe was left in the oven slightly just yes. passed, and that just passed mm-hmm. is bitter. Yeah, that's hops that you're noticing. Okay, and then the that is malt. That is the combination of what makes this beer so good. Is that like burnt? Yeah. That you, f- the burnt that you feel, yeah, is the hop, and the mm-hmm. burnt that you taste is the combination of years, yeah, plus malt and yeast and such. It's like that that burned kind of like that the 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 quality of toffee that's left with you after you eat the toffee. You know, you crunch. I just the, always want this instead of that. It's a unique experience. And this would have been a little bit darker when it was first released. And how old is this? This is 2016. Okay. This is five-year-old beer. Okay. And the thing with the oldest barley wine I've ever had was about 12 years old. And I was like, holy shit. This tastes sort of like it was born yesterday. Like Because they're so high in everything, alcohol, hops to balance all that out. They just, they move really slow. So they're one of the most interesting forms of beer to age. You just need to like that style because there are a lot of people that, most of my friends don't like this. When I buy a bottle of J.W. Lee's, it lasts me like three days and I drink it (laughs) still on its own. So I can't like, I can't drink a nine ounce bottle of this beer by myself. So I like will go splurge on my little $15 bottle of J.W. Lee's. Cute. I'll like Amazing. drink it in three different little sessions. Mm. Amazing. What a flavor experience this has been. Mm. Yeah. Age-worthy beers. It's It can be a thing if if you want to explore it, you know? Yeah. You just got to have the right conditions, and you don't even really need a pocketbook. You just need patience. Sounds great. And thank you for the tasty jazz. To timeless jazz and to age really beers. To scores and pours. To scores and pours. Thank you for listening to this episode of Scores and Pours with sommelier Jill Mott and radio host Emily Reese. You can find links and information about this podcast and support us financially at patreon.com slash scores and pours. You'll also find a link to merch, including hoodies and tees on said website. We are also on Instagram at Scores and Pours, and we love to hear from you. You can send us a DM there at Scores and Pours. Consider supporting the musicians we featured today by buying their music. And do rate us wherever you listen to your podcast, please. We'd love that. Edited by Emily Reese and Jill Mott. Our producer is Mr. Sam Keenan. Scores and Pours is a production of June Media Inc. Jill. Love you, June. Little cutie.